0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This lecture was delivered last year in 2020 as a Zoom presentation. To watch a recording of the lecture, visit David's YouTube page, details of which you will find via the episode webpage. Go to davidsolomon.online for more information.
1: Uh, Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to this talk, which I'm very, very honoured to be giving on behalf of the Australian Jewish Medical Federation. And what I wanted to talk about tonight was just a few figures, just three or four figures, maybe three, maybe four, maybe three and a half figures, who signify a very, very important contribution or series of contributions that uh, Jewish doctors and Jewish physicians made to the the modern world. And uh, that is where Jewish history can shed light, not only on medicine itself and on the uh, kinds of ways in which medicine is pushed forward, uh, but also on Jewish history and how we come to find ourselves uh, in the world we're in today. And in the last... uh, a a couple of years, I've started using this phrase about the 16th century uh, where I call it the century of the Jewish woman because it's incredible just how many amazing and uh, uh, profound stories there are of Jewish women and incredible Jewish women in the 16th century. Uh, But I've also started to realise that it's not just the century of the Jewish woman, it's also the century of the Jewish doctor. And if you throw a stone into the 16th century, it's going to land on an amazing woman or a Jewish doctor. But don't throw stones into the 16th century. They don't like it. They don't like it because they can't throw them back. But unfortunately, there are no women Jewish doctors that we're going to be discussing tonight. There's a whole reason behind why those two don't intersect. But they're parallel. So I'm going to go into, for the next uh, 50 minutes or so, I'm going to go into the 16th century. And we're going to look at some incredible people, because my job in Jewish history, really, uh, it's not my day job, it's my night job, and uh, the function of that night job is just to make sure that people have a minimum level of literacy about any period of Jewish history that might interest them. So when you are sitting around at those fancy medical dinner parties, and uh, the topic of Jewish doctors in the 16th century comes up... uh, I feel that these are the figures that you would need to know about, and it just so happens that they make contributions even far beyond the 16th century. At the same time, my greatest fear as an educator or as a speaker is to be uh, talking to an audience that is already fully literate on what I'm going to say, because although it's always good to go over material and revise, I don't want to tell you things you already know and waste your time. So I'm going to have to assume assume a kind of ground zero and beg forgiveness for those people who are already experts in Jewish doctors of the 16th century. And I'm also going to explain why the 16th century is such an important point, a nexus point in Jewish history generally, but particularly in the history of medicine, as I'm sure some of you are already aware Now, if we're talking about the 16th century, I'm going to show you something, but don't look too carefully if you're not prepared for this. If you're not prepared for this, because what I'm about to show you, before we talk about Jewish doctors of the 16th century, I need to show you the 16th century from the perspective of Jewish history. Now, some of you who have been to some of my other talks, particularly on the 16th century itself or in other frameworks, Uh, will have been conceptually prepared for this, but if you're not, then just take it easy. I'll only have it up there for a couple of seconds. But what I'm about to show you is has not got any Jewish doctors on it. It's just the 16th century in absolute, absolute 10,000-foot altitude overview. And it would look something like this. Now... Obviously, there are many, many things in the 16th century uh, that happened in the 16th century that are not on this. But uh, if you understand roughly what you're looking at here, then you will know how many of the conceptual themes uh, within the 16th century merge. And uh, what I would highlight to you really uh, is this... Uh, is, is, is this pink box here, Salonika. This is a chart I did not make for this talk. This is a chart for a different talk. It's for a talk uh, where I have to give an overview of the 16th century in 15 minutes. But uh, you would look at Salonika here, and you'll look at the rise of uh, Sultan Suleiman, the magnificent... Those are events that are, Donna Grazia, those are things that are going to interest us, but that's the 16th century. It's got a project of redemption going on, and most importantly, it is a century from the Jewish perspective that emerges in tremendous turmoil. I don't need to remind you that at the end of the 15th century, all of the Jews were expelled uh, from Spain and Portugal. In the Gerush Tzvarad, the great expulsion that, spilled hundreds of thousands of Jews across the rest of uh, the Mediterranean communities throughout Europe, and changed the face of the Jewish world forever. Uh, And out of that turmoil came some extraordinary things. And I'm going to talk about uh, three or four individuals who... I keep saying three or four, but you would think that by now I would have made my mind up. I'm going to talk about four, but maybe one of them I'll talk a little bit more briefly... Three or four individuals who, as a result of that tremendous turmoil, and I say this with full awareness that we live in a tumultuous age right now, I mean, right now, obviously. Um, those of us who are in Melbourne uh, feel that all too acutely. Uh, apparently, you know, I mean, there's 30,000, 40,000 people at the Eagles game in Perth right now who are not feeling it, but in Melbourne we still feel the, uh, the, the, the tumultuous nature of our, of our age. And uh, we realise that in all of these challenges, as I'm sure as medical professionals you tell yourselves and your patients, that in all challenges there are opportunities. And that is precisely what we see. Another reason why I wanted to talk about the 16th century is having made the modern world uh, and to highlight some of that. We could have gone into Jewish doctors of any century. I had to pick one, but I thought the 16th was excellent. And the first person I'm going to talk about... uh, (laughs) And I'm laughing because I'm looking at faces and I'm reading faces maybe differently. You see, when I look at all these faces in front of me, what I'm reading is a whole lot of people looking at me like, you're not serious. This is like the 80th lecture we've had on Jewish doctors of the 16th century. Please do not give us that again. Could you put your hand up if this is the 80th lecture you've heard on Jewish doctors of the 16th century? Okay, good. Well, then we won't have to do a basic literary test on that, but... The first person I want to talk about is possibly the most famous within Jewish history of this period, of the doctors we're going to look at. And I say within Jewish history because he's not the most famous on a world level, but probably the most famous uh, and and fleshed out figure that we know of historically. A lot has been written about him, he left a lot of records, and I'm talking about uh, Moshe Hamon. And uh, put your hand up. Don't Google anything. Put your hand up if you are familiar with who Moshe Hamon is. Oh, well, I don't see everybody's uh, thing in front of me, just probably about 30 or so screens I can see, and no one's put their hand up. So based on that, I'll keep going. Because Moshe Hamon is an individual whose life, not, I mean, not only is it someone we should know about, but whose life totally reflects some something incredible. Uh... And uh, we we even have a picture of Moshe Hamon, but I'm not going to show that to you yet. Uh, I'm going to tell you that Moshe Hamon was the personal physician of Sultan Suleiman. It's not a fact that's often known, that Suleiman the Magnificent had a Jewish doctor and a Jewish private physician. But the fact that Moshe Hamon held that position was itself remarkable. A testament to the man and a testament to the times. Uh, But the first thing we want to know about any of our Jewish doctors is where were they born and, more importantly, where did they study medicine? And we're going to see that, in fact, uh, that story begins already a 100 years earlier because some of you may know that uh, really our story starts in the 15th century because in the 15th century in Europe, it's in Christian Europe not so much in Spain, but more in Central and Western, Western and Central Europe, some conditions for Jews were starting to lighten up. I mean, we're not talking equal rights, we're not talking anything, but there were, there was a recurring interest that was growing as the 15th century was going on in things Jewish. There was a kind of a grudging recognition, especially after the turmoil of the 14th century, the Black Plague and so on. But in the 15th century, a lot of people were coming, and especially with the Renaissance and the rise of the humanities, people were starting to think that maybe Jews were human beings. And by the end of the 15th century, there was even a view, and a strong view sweeping across uh, Europe, that the Jews may in fact have been custodians of an ancient wisdom that we should be accessing. And this is going to spill out in a great many ways. But in relation to Jewish doctors, what we find in the 15th century is we start finding some Jewish physicians, and Jews have always had physicians for their own communities, but no one previously would have thought of hiring a Jewish doctor for the royal family in Europe. That would have been anathema. But in 1409, Padua University, in a place called Padua in Italy, about 50 miles from Venice, decided to open up its faculty of medicine for Jews in recognition of the fact that uh, Jewish communities needed uh, doctors and these doctors need to be properly trained in some form uh, and also because uh, wealthy middle-class Jewish families in Europe, there were some, were willing to pay good money for one of their sons to go and study at Padua and because at the end of the day, people started hearing that Jews made good doctors. One of the reasons why uh, people started hearing that is because Jews were going around telling them. At any rate, we get to a point in the 15th century where you have someone, I'm not going to really be talking about this individual, We you have someone like uh, Yaakov Ben Yechil Lowans who becomes the physician to Emperor Frederick III. He was the Emperor, the Habsburg Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. That's an astonishing thing uh, in itself. And we're not going to look at Loans' career. What's amazing about Loans, and here we have to realise that there's more to being a physician than just knowing how to diagnose and heal. If you're a physician at any time, but certainly in the 16th century, you're going to use your position uh, of tremendous closeness, physical closeness, to the ruler, to work on behalf of Jewish communities. And that's a pattern that people like Loans were establishing in the 15th century as they rose to these positions of prominence within courts. But even more astonishing is that Lowens taught Johannes Reuchlin, and I've spoken about Reuchlin elsewhere, and don't get confused. Reuchlin's not a doctor and he's not Jewish, but he was the greatest German Hebraic scholar at the end of the 15th century, defended the Talmud, huge impact on Jewish publishing history and Jewish history generally and he was taught Hebrew by Lowens by Frederick's doctor. In other words the job of a doctor is not merely to heal patients but also to teach them to read Hebrew if they think that that is going to make a significant impact on Jewish history. I would advise all doctors if they don't know what to do with the patient to teach them Hebrew. However I want to move to the uh, 16th because what we're starting to see is the turmoil of Jews spilling out of uh, Spain. And what we do know is that one place where a lot of doctors from Spain were going, a lot of Jewish doctors, most Jewish doctors would have been had their own schools of medicine. In fact, a lot of them would have gone to the School of Medicine uh, at the University of Salamanca, which um, has a very, very old and established uh, medical school. Uh, but when Jews started coming out of Spain, they had to go wherever they could find a place to go. And most doctors ended up in Salonica. Salonika was one of the economic development zones that the Ottoman Empire set up to ship Jews off to. And it so happened that if you throw a stone in Salonika in the first half of the 16th century, it's going to land on a Jewish doctor. In fact, there were so many Jewish doctors in Salonika. Salonika, by the way, later known as Thessaloniki, Salonika is, was... For 200 years from that point, the largest Jewish community in the world. It was called the Mother of Israel. And it got this immense impetus in the early 16th century and created basically an entire medical industry. People in the 16th century were even saying, if you're going to get sick, get sick in Salonika because everywhere you turn, there's another Jewish doctor who's going to tell you what's wrong with you and how to fix it.
0: You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. If you enjoy these lectures, you can help us cover the cost of hosting, editing, and producing these podcasts for as little as $3 a month. Visit davidsolomon.online to learn more.
1: So we had a great preponderance of that, but there's one family who didn't go to Salonika, the Hamon family. And the Hamon family, H-A-M-O-N, were probably the most celebrated family in a uh, in, uh, medical family in Spain. They were serious physicians. It had been in the mishpacha, it had been in the family for a long time. And very, very esteemed head of the Hamon family, uh, also a physician to kings and so on, uh, Joseph Hamon. And Joseph Hamon took his family in 1493, as a result of well, expulsion in 1492, but eventually in 1493, managed to arrive in Constantinople. And, of course, he's Joseph Hamon, he's from Spain, but no, 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 that, that, that is only going to afford you a limited status in Constantinople. You're in a whole other world. And the way it worked in Constantinople was you had to enter into, be qualified and accepted into the very close circle of a dozen or so doctors around the sultan, which would have its own head physician, it would have consultants on various areas, and they would basically be a medical team for the sultan. Within the sultan's medical team, by the time we get to the 1520s, 15, 1530s, 15, are a number of Jewish doctors uh, who recognised for their talent and for their capabilities and for who they are. And so they formed, the Jewish doctors, three or four of them, formed a kind of smaller clique within the broad team of the sultan's medical council. Like a sub-faction. And very quickly, Joseph Hamon rose rose to the head of that faction. But you have to realise that the highest paid Jewish doctor was probably paid about a third of what the, uh, uh, the, the, the average paid Islamic doctor was within that council. So Jews were tolerated. They were allowed to have these positions of esteem. But there was a limitation on them. And Joseph Hamon, being very, very experienced and talented and with such a reputation, obviously, when he arrived, the Jew says, oh, Joseph Hamon, he has to come into the Sultan's Circle and uh, help us out here. And that's what Joseph Hamon did. Joseph Hamon, by the way, brought his young son, uh, Moses. Moses Hamon, Moshe Hamon. Moshe Hamon was only three years old when they arrived in Constantinople. So he grew up in Constantinople with his father as the Uh, head of the Jewish physicians within the court of Suleiman and uh, by the time he's around 20 years old he's already been working for some years with his father so it's with his father and within that circle that Moshe himself studied medicine everything was hands-on I imagine that he might have done a bit of theory but there weren't many theoretical medical schools in Constantinople ...that Hamon would have been able to attend. So everything would have been done via basically his father, which was fine. Uh, But Moshe Hamon had time on his hands as a young man around 20 years old... ...and it's fascinating how different subjects intersect... ...because I've been working recently in my day job... ...on a very, very early printed Kabbalistic book from Constantinople in 1510... ...and it would appear that Moshe Hamon was part of a circle of young men who were interested in establishing a printing press in Constantinople. Listen to that, 1510. I mean, that is astonishingly early for a printing press outside of Europe. And it's in Constantinople, and it's publishing Hebrew texts. And Moshe Hamon is beside that. But eventually, at some point, uh, he uh, stopped doing all those extracurricular activities and focused specifically on his medicine. And we find that by the time we get to the uh, 1530s, Moshe Hamon is so talented and so broadly brilliant and so politically capable that he has risen not only to be the head of the Jewish doctors, therefore replacing his father's position, but he has in fact pretty much risen to be the head doctor of, the, of Suleiman's entire medical dean. Uh, that... <coughs> is nothing short of remarkable. We're not talking about a Jew who ceased to be an observant Jew. Moshe Hamon was a great supporter, not only of the printing of Jewish textbooks, but he even established a yeshiva in Constantinople while he had the influence and capability of being Suleiman's doctor. He brought the famous Rabbi Yosef Zak to Constantinople. That's a whole other story. Those of you who are familiar with this figure will know the impact of that. And really importantly... He is responsible, pretty much, for having got Donna Grazia and her daughter out of Venice under the pressure of the Inquisition by having Suleiman write personally to the elders of Venice to allow her to emigrate to Constantinople. Thus, in a sense, virtually, and Yosef Nasi, changing the face of Jewish history forever. For those of you who are familiar with the circumstances of how the weight of, of the Jewish world shifted in the 16th century as a result of people like Dona Grazia Mendes, And Hamon had a direct hand in that as a personal physician of the Sultan. And so when we're looking at him, and I know it's not terribly specifically medical, there will be in a moment, but uh, just in terms of doctors and their political influence is really what I'm looking at now, but they have an incredible du- enduring effect. Probably the most famous... Enduring effect of Moshe Hamon's career with, the, with Sultan Suleiman was the fact that uh, there was a blood libel. I mean, okay, make no mistake. Do you, do you understand who Sultan Suleiman is? Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. He's the Suleiman the Magnificent. So he's the one who built the walls around Jerusalem. When you go to Jerusalem today, and the walls of the city, they were built by Suleiman. And if Suleiman has a dream, as a legend would have it, that he was told that he had to build these walls, who do you think would have been the first person he would have related that dream to? And therefore, Moshe Hamon was right inside Suleiman's project of the restoration of Jerusalem. This then leads on to everything that was going to happen in the Ottoman Empire in the second half of the 16th century. He also had dealings with Roxolana, and we've spoken about the v Sultanate and the impact of powerful women and powerful Jewish women in the court of the Sultan. But there was a blood libel. and uh, it was a resu- And th- this was a terrible blood libel. What happened was, uh, I mean, it had blood libels in Europe for hundreds of years, but the Ottoman Empire, this was a bit of a hitch, it was a bit new. And in a place called Amasya in uh, northwest Turkey, I believe, and there was a blood libel. And the problem with this is that the town authorities rounded up some Jews who they blamed, trialed them, and executed them with no evidence. And uh, whilst that was terrible enough, about a year later, the guy that they were accused of killing walked into town. And uh, therefore, proving that the entire fiasco uh, had been a tremendous travesty of justice that went all the way up to the Sultan. And it was Moshe Hamon whose tremendous influence in this particular case caused Sultan Suleiman to issue a promulgation on behalf of the Ottoman Empire that the fundamental assumption of all blood libels is that they are false. And that anybody who wants to try any Jew for a blood libel, it has to be tried in the capital by the royal court. The implication being that the, Sultan, the Ottoman authorities were fully aware that the blood libel is a political accusation. In Europe they were still able to delude themselves, it was a theological accusation, but it, the Ottomans were aware it's always political and therefore it's usually based on lack of evidence. This, by the way, got reinforced much, much later, 300 years later, in the, 18, in the famous Damascus affair in 1840, where once again they had to reiterate uh, the Ottoman Empire, that, uh, that understanding. So Moshe Hamon's uh, <laughs> influence is extraordinary. He, he was an amazing linguist. He could speak several languages, which he saw as an important part of his medical training and his medical practice. He was a bibliophile, um, And in fact, we have a portrait of him. So I'm going to show you a picture. Now, why do we have a picture of him? We have a picture of him because the famous French traveler, Nicolas Nicolet, went to Constantinople and drew Hamon in a famous portrait called Medicine Juif. Here we are. Here's Moshe Hamon. And that is one impressive-looking dude. That's a person that looks like he would be the physician Uh, to uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. But that is Moshe Hamon. And uh, astonishing career, but it's also astonishing that we actually uh, have a picture of him. That's one of the things about looking at the 16th century. You can actually start to see what people look like. So uh, Unfortunately, and I'm going to finish on Hamon because it's already 8 o'clock and i spent quite a bit of time on him, uh, and and I'm only giving headlines. Those of you who want to go into his career more extensively uh, can look at it, Uh, but I'm going to touch on a little medical issue now that will interest you because he did have a downfall in his position and status towards the end of his career. And Well, he died not long after, but I I think just through the sheer stress of this, what happened was uh, the Sultan... Uh, This is already, I think, uh, Suleiman's son, Selim, but uh, the sultan was suffering from gout. Now, we know, I mean, you know, (laughs) we know, you know, that gout uh, has been around for a long time. So it's not something that was misdiagnosed, but uh, Hamon was coming up with this treatment, and what he was doing was he was uh, massaging opium on the sultan's legs which obviously had the effect of dulling the pain, but it wasn't curing it. And it so happened that another doctor from Germany was visiting through Constantinople and the sultan was advised to seek a consultation from this doctor. And this doctor said that uh, Dr. Hamon's been putting opium on your legs. Uh, That might dull the pain in the short term, but it's going to have damaging long-term consequences. Er, Ergo, you're going to be an opium addict. It's going to have... Uh, long-term consequences, and therefore he went to a totally different uh, method of of treatment and eventually cured the Sultan of gout. Uh, that caused Hamon's status after uh, several decades of an incredibly illustrious and unassailable career where he was identified with everything that you could know about medicine. He unfortunately ended his career in, in conditions that, 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 that weren't uh, so illustrious. I mean... It's not like he went broke, but uh, for him, that was uh, that was not the way he wanted to end. That's how we understand. There are some conflicting historical uh, perspectives on that, but that, I think, is basically seems to be what happened. But I'm going to move on from... Oh, and... Uh, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. i uh, give one more <laughs> thing on Hamon, because uh, Hamon was this amazing bibliophile. So his copy of uh, Pedanius Dioscorides, The Materia Medica, which is one of the most famous books that came out of the, uh, survived through the Middle Ages of ancient world medicine. And in fact, the most famous copy of that was owned by Moshe Hamon. It's in Austria now. How it got to Austria is a whole story in itself. And he also left a treatise on dentistry that also became a classic of Ottoman dentistry for a long, long time. So Moshe Hamon's legacy was not simply in his political influence, but also deeply in his ability to uh, get in touch, I mean, get into the Uh, details of the new science of medicine as it was excitingly being developed in the 16th century. The 16th century is the century where people are kind of, you know, (laughs) breaking off the shackles of the intellectual and spiritual paradigms of the Middle Ages. And so medicine was undergoing a revival in many, many ways. And his son Joseph took over after him. So that's Moshe Hamon's, the first figure I want to talk about, and comes directly from the Spanish expulsion. Now I'm going to talk about someone else. And I'm hoping that some of you might have heard of this person. But I'm still going to talk about them. Now you tell me, who's this? Who's that? Who's that? Now don't, don't, don't Google anything. Just who's that? First of all, let me tell you that the building behind him is the Institute of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in Lisbon. And the massive statue that stands in front of it is none other than Garcia D'Orta. And Garcia D'Orta is huge. Uh, and I'm going to talk about him for a few minutes. I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with the name at least, and it is worth going into his career. How does a Jew? from the 16th century have a statue in front of the Institute of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in Lisbon? How does that happen, given what we know of the Jewish community of Portugal and what they went through in the 16th century? But just before, just before we talk about it, I want to talk about one other doctor who, in the world of, kind of the field of medical history on a world level... Is probably the best known amongst scholars of medical history, and that would be Amato Lucetano, who some of you may also have heard of. Uh, he actually, we have a we have a statue of him as well. Bef- this is before I'm going to talk about D'Orta. I'm just going to talk briefly about Amato Lucetano. I wasn't uh, I wasn't going to, but I just want to briefly talk about him for a second, and I'm going to therefore bring up uh, a. Uh, a picture of him. So, <laughs> born as How Rodriguez, Amato Lusitano, uh, that is, uh, that statue is actually uh, located in Castelo Branco, which is, uh, was his birthplace in Portugal. And, uh, 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 there's something about, there's something about the 16th century that unless you've spent a little bit of time studying Jewish history, you may not be aware. I mean, everybody knows Every taxi driver in Tel Aviv, in Melbourne even, can tell you that the Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492 and from Portugal in 1496. But those expulsions were a little bit different. In Spain, they said, all Jews, out. No, boom, out. There's no discussion. If you're here after this date, which was Tisha B'Av of 1492, you're a Christian. And if you're not... The Inquisition is going to kill you or torture you, whatever it is going to do. You have to leave. Uh, and people left. But in Portugal, they said, we're going to kick all the Jews out. <laughs> but we're not actually going to let them go. What we're going to do is we're going to just assume everyone's Christian But we're, from this date. But we're not going to look too closely for about the next 30 or 40 years you got that long to sort yourself out, but no one's leaving. I think the Portuguese foresaw the economic disaster that would have happened as a result of that, and already people are starting to talk about the new world. There's hardly the time to start breaking your economy by kicking out Jews. So they were given a few decades to sort themselves out, but they couldn't leave. So, uh, Amato Lusitano went and studied medicine at the University of Salamanca, but didn't want to come back to Portugal because of those conditions. By that time, by the time we're already, I mean, he's born in like 1511. So, by the time he's in his late 20s, we're starting to get deep into that period that the Portuguese are starting to get interested in revisiting the the, uh, particular interests of the Inquisition in the Jewish community of Portugal. And now, of course, those bans extended to the New World as well. So uh, he came, he didn't uh, decide not to go back to Portugal and he emigrated to Italy. Uh, As a Jew living in Italy in the Papal States, uh, there were some aspects of that that weren't so bad, um, much more limiting in other ways, but uh, nevertheless, you know, you could make a living. And uh, he did. And he was lecturing, got a job as an anatomy lecturer at the University of Ferrara. And Amato Lusitana, his famous session where he did. Now, now there, there were differences in the medical schools because the medical schools in Italy tended to be more theoretical and the medical schools in uh, West, uh, further west and also in Spain, tended to be more hands on. So, when Lusitano did a dissection, he didn't just do one cadaver, he did 12 in one session. And people, they were amazed. But in the course of which, he demonstrated. The existence of the valves of the heart, which is no small contribution to the development of anatomy in the 16th century, I can tell you. So, phenomenal contribution. Eventually, he had to flee and made his way to the Ottoman Empire, eventually, uh, because uh, the Inquisition started cranking up in Italy as the 16th century was going on. Different popes, different ideas... Uh, and uh, that's a separate uh, subject. You know how we went from Clement the Seventh through to Paul the Third, then Paul the Fourth, and all of the uh, nastiness that was happening around Ancona. Which, by the way, of course, <laughs> the international boycott of Dona Grazia Mendes that was effected by the influence of Moshe Hamon. So everything is interconnected. But I just wanted to talk briefly about Lusitano, because for some people he's actually the most famous Jewish doctor of the 16th century. But not when I'm going into detail right now. I want to come back to. Garcia Dorta and Garcia, and why his statue is in front of the Institute of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in Lisbon because Garcia Dorta also studied medicine at the University of Salamanca. Brilliant, brilliant young man, and brilliant because he had an incredible breadth of interest not only in medicine itself but all things pertaining to medicine, including not just anatomy but botany and zoology and all of the different facets. Of the medical field and what could contribute towards it, and he eventually rose to a position where he was invited by John III of Portugal. Now, th- those of you who are familiar with uh, history, Jewish history, and history of the early uh, first decade of the 16th century will know that John III of Portugal uh, was a complex figure, but nevertheless, D'Orta became his physician. Now, D'Orta by virtue of having been born in portugal born in portugal around 1501 by virtue of having been born in portugal he was effectively christian in name as far as the government was concerned because everybody in portugal was a christian but the reality was he was a jew and he was still observing jewish law at home he had the fortune of growing up in those first two or three decades before the Inquisition started looking at Jewish communities, so everybody knew that Jews were, you know, keeping Shabbat and keeping kosher and eating gefilte fish. Well, they weren't. They weren't eating gefilte fish in Spain. I only said that as a joke, not to confuse you. But that they were keeping all those commandments. But as far as the government said. Everybody's Christian, so there must be Christians. So there wasn't any obstacle to him, unless he was to run around the streets going, I keep the laws of Moses. There wasn't any obstacle to him to becoming the royal physician. But he didn't like it. And as the 1530s come, and as the Inquisition starts cranking up, he hotfoots it out of Portugal. Now, how do you hot-foot it out of Portugal? If you're the royal physician, how are you going to get out of Portugal? Because uh, John III might want to know where you've gone. And also, uh, it's not easy for Jews, and especially Jews who are actually pretending to be Christians, to go. So he hops it out with this individual. And I'm going to show you this person, because uh, this, is, this is someone that becomes uh, García Dórt's friend. And a very important individual in the context of his career. Some of you may recognize him. I mean, really, I mean, really, when you look at that, you realize that everything in men's fashion since the early 16th century has just gone downhill. Why can't, why can't we dress like that anymore? <laughs> that, of course, <laughs> is Martim de Souza. And de Souza was going to go and become the first Portuguese governor of India. And D'Orta joined him. D'Souza had already led the main kind of first um, Portuguese expedition into mainland Brazil, already a huge figure. So he was appointed governor of India. And D'Orta said, you know what? I'm going with D'Souza to India. And so in the 1530s, he arrives with D'Souza in India And he settles in Goa where he's basically practicing uh, as a Jew, I mean quietly because you don't want to make too big a deal about it because ultimately it's Portuguese territory. As you would know, the world, by the way, I didn't mention this because I assumed people are aware of it, you do know (laughs) that at the end of the the 15th century, Spain and Portugal basically divided up the world. So Spain said, oh, we'll take the Americas, uh, or North America, whatever, or Central America, whatever, we'll take the Americas. And Portugal said, well, if you're going west in that direction, we're going to go east. So it's the Portuguese who developed all the trade routes from Europe down through Africa and off through to the East Indies. And, of course, to, hold, to discover those sea routes was a major advance in 16th century travel and communication and shipping, and ultimately trade. And so Garcia Orta is sitting in, in India and becomes, over the course of the next few decades, in just astonishing contribution, the first person really to synthesize Eastern and Western medical traditions. He became the first person to describe the different plants and remedies and herbs that were being exported back to Europe from India that people had never seen before and their use in Indian medicine in India itself. He is the first person ever to have described cholera. He performed the first ever autopsy in India. But his massive contribution is his great work, The Colloquios, which is uh, a series of cases and discussions in which allow him to describe what he's seeing, but in terms of the uh, plants and herbs and the sheer botany of India and how it was integrated into its holistic medical system. So he's combining Western and Ayurvedic medicines, but he's also making a huge contribution, not only to the sum of knowledge back in Europe, in European medicine and world medicine, but also in method This is the 16th century. So when Garcia D'Orta says in his colloquios don't try and frighten me with Dioscorides or Galen because I am only going to say what I know to be true. That is a massive 16th century statement. And that is why his statue sits in front of the, uh, the institute in Lisbon. But it's even more amazing because what happened was the Inquisition eventually caught up with Garcia D'Orta. Oh, we've heard you're practicing as a Jew over there in India. They arrested his uh, mother and his sister who were only released because of an intervention by D'Souza, we understand, and eventually were allowed to join D'Orta in India. But the Inquisition eventually caught up with him but only in the year that he died. So they started making noises and then Dorta died in 1568. Nevertheless, within a year, they had arrested his sister and burnt her at the stake. People don't realize that the Portuguese were burning Jews in India between the 1560s and the 1620s. And Dorta's sister was one of them. But the Inquisition was so relentless that ten years later, they dug up Dorta's remains and burnt them with an effigy, together with all his books. Fortunately, his amazing contribution, much of which had already arrived back in, back in Europe. But there were very few copies of his work in India because the Inquisition had basically uh, destroyed it all. But Dorta is huge, and I think that... Uh, Of all the doctors that we are talking about in this very brief overview session, he's probably the most, uh, uh, in my view, perhaps the most impactful in his method and in his outlook. Uh, And he remained faithful. We understand from evidence given by his brother-in-law that he remained faithful to Jewish tradition right until the end. He was, in fact, simply a faux Christian. He was only outwardly Christian because that was the political thing to do but he was in fact very very Jewish and so we find uh, two, two statues at least of Jewish doctors in Portugal who are trying hard even in our generation to make up for all the horrendous uh, acts that they did during the times of the Inquisition and that's, and that's just in India I mean not even what's going on in the, in the new world in terms of the Inquisition and how it travelled with Spain and Portugal there which is a whole other subject that we've talked about in other places now uh, the last doctor I want to talk about uh, we've spoken about Moses Hamon and we've spoken about uh, Amato Lusitano fortunately I was able to get him in there also someone who uh, who, uh, who lost a great part of his legacy because he had to run from the Inquisition uh, we spoke, we've spoken about Garcia D'Orta and there's one more Jewish doctor who's according for some, for some, not all scholars but for some scholars, depending on what area you're in, is also going to be among the most famous Jewish doctors, in fact some people might think he's the most famous Jew of the 16th century anyone know who I'm talking about? right, well I'm sure you do, you're just being polite but Another Jew, born in Portugal. And uh, May, Yeah, well, not May, he did. He studied at the University of Salamanca, like Lusitano and like Garcia D'Orta, the University of Salamanca, very celebrated, very old university, and uh, one of the places, I mean, <laughs> it's not, some people say, oh, but you know, we thought Padua was the only place where Jews could study. That's correct. If you wanted to study medicine and st- be considered a Jew, then you went to Padua. But if you were living in Spain or Portugal in the early decades and you were Christian by default but you were really Jewish, then you studied at the University of Salamanca because they'd let you in. So this young man's name was... His father was Antonio Lopez, who was a very celebrated doctor also in Portugal because he also was physician to John III. There's a very good chance that he actually took over after Garcia D'Orta joined D'Souza to India, he was replaced because by now everybody had Jewish doctors. I mean, one of the things I didn't say about Amato Lusitano, you need to realise, is that he was himself personally summoned to attend to the sickbed of Julius III, the Pope. So the Pope had a personal Jewish physician. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire had a personal Jewish physician. There was a Jewish, Jewish physician, uh, that was the head doctor of the whole of the Portuguese India. So John III in Portugal had a Jewish physician, and after Garcia Dorta, Antonio Lopez was appointed, and Antonio Lopez had a son called Rodrigo. And Rodrigo Lopez went to Salamanca, and he came back, but once again, still wanted to kind of not be under the pressure of the Inquisition. So like so many people, they got out maybe in, maybe a little later than some, maybe he got out more in the 1550s, but he made his way, whereas some people were making their way to Holland and so on, these are the late people coming out of Portugal, the late waves, the later waves, not the early waves, the later waves, the ones that could. He is the first, <laughs> I mean, he makes his way to England. Now in England, they don't want any Jews, and they don't even want any Catholics. The only way that he's going to be able to stay in England is if he converts to the Church of England and he becomes a Protestant. So here's this Portuguese Jew, rocks up in London in the middle of the 16th century and wants to practice medicine and says, I'm a good boy of the Church of England. But really, I mean, anyway, so he gets a job at St. Bartholomew's and he works with doctors there and he is very impressive and he's very clever, and he's very charismatic, he's very charming, but he's also very, very capable. He's a really good doctor. Clearly, the uh, school at Salamanca must have been absolutely outstanding with the doctors it produced. So, he goes to, uh, he, he rises up, and eventually starts getting himself some famous Elizabethan clients. Walsingham, various earls, nobility... And he becomes what's the first kind of celeb doctor. In other words, if you're anybody who's anybody, you have to have Rodrigo Lopez, the Jew. They knew he was Church of England on the outside, but they called him the Jew doctor. You need to have him. Because, oh, you know, on the continent, in the Ottoman Empire, everybody's got Jew doctors. We don't even have any Jew. They're, he's basically the only person in in England you could say that's a Jew, even though he was Christian. So eventually, obviously, it gets to the point where Elizabeth I is going, oh, who's this Rodrigo Lopez? This fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, because he became a fellow of the Royal College. And eventually, of course, Elizabeth can't be left out of what's popular, and he is appointed royal physician personal to Elizabeth I. Her personal doctor was Rodrigo Lopez, the Jew doctor. Now, that was going very, very well. And the, one of the other reasons why people wanted to hire Lopez is because he kept telling people how good he was. And I've got to tell you, with all due respect to many of the doctors in this room, because I know you, or, or everyone's very humble, but it's not a good idea necessarily for a doctor to go running around telling people how good a doctor they are. It can backfire, but it backfired in an unexpected way for Rodrigo Lopez because he happened to tell a few people indiscreetly that he had cured Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, of the pox. Oh, yes, I can treat venereal disease. I remember I treated Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex. He had it, I cured him. And apparently, the Earl of Essex was not terribly pleased that Rodrigo Lopez had revealed that particular fact about him. Issues of medical security and of information uh, in the privacy of information, even in the 16th century, uh, may not have been developed as it was t- is today, but no one wants a doctor running around town telling people how they cured you of the pox. So he made an enemy out of the Earl of Essex. And that didn't take, it wasn't long then before the Earl was able to get other people to conspire. I'm not dumping all of this on Robert Devereux. Historians have gone into this a lot and we're not, you know, it, it just, it's just an angle on it. But uh, what is for sure is that eventually Rodrigo Lopez, uh, through his own injudicious communications, because he was also, uh, you know, fancying himself as a bit of a celeb, so he was having communications with various Spanish individuals and it wasn't difficult for them to conspire a plot that he was going to poison the Queen. And he was brought to trial. The Queen did not want to believe it. She actually delayed signing his sentence for months because she liked him and because he was a personal doctor. And she just couldn't believe why would he do that. And in fact, Lopez himself was jumping up and down the whole time going, I'm innocent. Yes, I write to Spanish people, but I don't know anything about any plots, schmucks, whatever. But it didn't help him. And in 1594, he became the first and ever royal physician to be hung, drawn, and quartered for treason. He was, in fact, executed. A horrendous end. However, his legacy endures because on the day that he was executed, rehearsals began for Christopher Marlowe's The Jew of Malta. And many scholars believe that it was the figure of Rodrigo Lopez that was the kind of Uh, iconic Jew figure that they were trying to encapsulate because in England they wouldn't have met many Jews and was not only that icon for Marlowe but of course ultimately for the most famous Jew of the 16th century who is in fact a fictional uh, character called the Merchant of Venice written by Shakespeare and Shakespeare, according to some, modelled his kind of mode of representing the Jew on Rodrigo Lopez. Even though uh, Lopez's last words was, I believe in the Queen, I believe in Jesus, please don't kill me. uh, He was a Jew from Portugal, as far as everyone was concerned. And in fact, that may well have been what he was. So, uh, (laughs) I have covered at great height and speed. And uh, once again, headlines only. I'll show you another chart, just so that you can uh, see where we ended up. Here are the four physicians that I spoke about. As I said earlier, it's a shame that there's no intersection of the century of Jewish women and the century of Jewish doctors. And bear in mind, there are a lot more doctors that I haven't spoken about, but we only have a certain amount of time. And I wanted to bring to your attention these incredibly important people, but perhaps the most important thing to bring to your attention is the fact that we chose the 16th century, but we could have gone into any era and found ways in which Jewish doctors were making contributions to Jewish history in one way or another, and how there is a tremendous intersection between those two fields. And I urge anyone involved in the medical profession who understands how the way in which history can ground meaning in the world and ground our understanding of our identity in the world and where we came from and where we're going and how periods of turmoil can produce tremendous contributions to world history, then I offer what I've spoken about this evening as an example. There are no questions and I'm very happy with that. It either means that I've covered every single of the topic, or it means that I've been so confusing that no one's understood even enough to be able to ask a question. Um, but, if you, uh, but I've just been handed this, look, I don't plug my own talks, uh, other people can do that, but I've just been handed this, if you do want to fill in the pieces of the 16th century, apparently there's a website which has got the collected talks of uh, this person called David Solomon, and uh, that's davidsolomon.online and you'd be able to hear more about the 16th century if that interests you. If women interest you, and women interest all of us, then I uh, there are uh, other talks, or if there's any other aspect of the 16th, or even any other century, um, I'm sure there might be something there for you, but the 16th, is a very complicated century. So what we've tried to do is make sense of it, and I'm hoping that uh, it didn't come across as too hectic. But uh, even without that background, I think that the figures we looked at tonight are fascinating in themselves, and that they stand alone and would be considerable in whichever period of history they lived in.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about David's next classes and projects visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.